Hello and welcome to another episode of Black Peaks podcast, Tête à Tête. I'm Vanessa Capdevielle, I'm head of the Southeast Asia practice for Black Peak, and I'm joined today by Kevin O'Rourke, an expert of Indonesian politics, who is a good friend of the firm and also a longtime friend of mine. Kevin started his career in Indonesia in 1994 as an equity research analyst after graduating from Harvard University with a degree in government. He is the author of Reformacy, The Struggle of Power in Post-Soarto Indonesia, a book that was published in 2002 and which remains today a reference for anyone who wants to understand the collapse of the financial system, the downfall of Soarto and the key figures in the post-Soarto era. He's also the writer and publisher of Reformacy Weekly, a subscription newsletter that provides in-depth analysis of politics, policymaking, justice, and economics in Indonesia, which he has managed to publish without interruption since 2003. I would highly recommend anyone keen to understand investment conditions in Indonesia and the wider political and business environment in the country to subscribe to Kevin's newsletter. We'll put a link in the description of this podcast. More recently, Kevin has also started his own podcast called Reformacy Dispatch, which is a weekly news and politics podcast that you can find online. Today, we are going to talk about Indonesia's anti-corruption agency, most well-known under its Indonesian acronym KPK. The KPK was formed in 2003, effective in 2005, and it was for a very long time one of the most trusted and popular institutions in Indonesia, and also one of the best-known anti-corruption agencies in the region. The work of the KPK has led to the arrests of Numerous individuals, including government ministers, leaders of political parties, governors, mayors, members of parliament, and powerful businessmen. While there has been um, multiple attempts to weaken the KPK, the institution has managed to largely maintain its independence and integrity until about two years ago, when major changes occurred just after the re-election of, of Joko Widodo as president. In particular, Pirli Bahuri, a three-star police general, was appointed as the chairman of the KPK. At the same time, the parliament was adopting amendments to the KPK law, changing the status of the KPK personnel from independent to regular civil servants. So, Kevin, tell us why these changes are uh, major and, and mark a turning point in, in KPK's history. Yeah, sure. It's great to be here. Thanks, Vanessa. Um, yeah, the uh, civil service in Indonesia was a pillar of the Suharto regime for 32 years, which was a, a very elaborate patronage-based authoritarian structure. And uh, to this day, the civil service still has yet to undergo uh, sufficient internal reform. So. There's a lack of meritocracy and there's um, uh, vulnerability to control and influence of civil servants from their superiors um, rather than fostering professionalism. So one of the really debilitating factors of uh, President Widodo's decision in 2019 to revise the 2003 KPK law was uh, a requirement to make all KPK personnel conform to standard rules governing the uh, mainstream civil service. 
previously in, in 2003, the original five commissioners of the KPK insisted at the time that uh, the government exempt the KPK from the civil service rules and therefore the commission was able to hire personnel on a professional basis and incentivize them properly and also impose uh, accountability and transparency. And uh, that was that that's really been a key factor that has enabled the commission to be so uh, professional and effective over the past 15 years or the the ensuing 15 years, I should say. Um, and so and now that um, you know, the, uh, the the personnel are, are really under the control of the civil service, the commission will in practice have uh, less independence. It'll be more uh, subjected to whoever is uh, in charge politically in, in national government. I see. It, it sounds quite astonishing that this these changes could happen under the tenure of a president who uh, was described as one of the, the the best reformers that the country has known and uh, also uh, seen as a staunch supporter of the KPK. How, how do you explain that this could happen under his second term whilst he was seen, uh, at least during the first term, to be quite a proponent of the KPK? Yeah, exactly. Um, he came into national politics with a reputation as a, a clean operator. Um, and in fact, Widodo has um, avoided any uh, scandal affecting himself or his family uh, throughout his career to date. Um, however, he also is uh, conventional politically in the sense that he very much wants consensus uh, among the political elite. And in this case, uh, he's dealing with a parliament that is highly fragmented among nine parties, all of which are very... Uh, have a lot of antipathy towards the KPK precisely because parliamentarians have been a prime target of KPK investigations for many years. Um, basically, Widodo succumbed uh, to the to the demands from these uh, parliamentary party bosses to weaken the KPK. Uh, I suspect there, there may have been a bargain uh, involved with that. Um, there's no evidence, but perhaps there was a quid pro quo or by Widodo acceded to the demands of Parliament to weaken the KPK, and in return, he extracted some sort of a concession or a agreement or cooperation from them. It is also uh, noteworthy that at the same time that this happened in late 2019, uh, Parliament um, uh, or initiated um, the uh, omnibus law and job creation, which uh, passed quite easily through Parliament. Uh, in about a year's time yeah. and that's a uh, legislation that Widodo has ardently fought for as, as a means to help the investment climate and uh, overcome regulatory impediments to uh, managing workforces and, and thereby improve investment into uh, labor-intensive manufacturing and create the jobs that Indonesians so sorely need. But if it's true that it came at the expense of the KPK, then it's a little bit self-defeating or um, counterintuitive because uh, governance and uh, legal certainty is actually the, the major thing, uh, hampering investment and therefore uh, gains accomplished through the passage of the omnibus law on one hand uh, could be eroded by uh, losses with regards to uh, clean governance and uh, legal certainty 
due to the weakening of the KPK on the other hand. Right. I understand that this omnibus law is, is has been described as a kind of big bang economic reform whereby uh, in a single stroke, this new law was able to amend a bunch of former um, laws and regulations. And as you say, one of the main aim of the reform was to boost domestic and foreign investment. But what is the real impact on, on the foreign investment climate of, of the omnibus law? Um, yeah, the real impact, um, it's good, uh, it's positive. The, the omnibus law is, is needed. Uh, it's a good measure, it's constructive. Uh, in particular, the, the real crux of it focuses on rigidities in labor market regulations. For example, it was extremely hard for uh, factories to manage their workforces uh, because of uh, very restrictive rules about um, you know, hiring people and especially firing people, and then also uh, uh, severance pay uh, when um, when workers are dismissed, uh, which uh, severance pay levels in Indonesia were third highest in the world, according to the World Bank after Mauritius and Sierra Leone. And uh, basically that just uh, provided a big disincentive for um, some of the lower end labor intensive investors in garments and textiles and footwear to come into Indonesia because there was a, a lot of risk involved in and the prospect of them having to suddenly go out of business, which happens all the time in those sectors. Um, so the, the omnibus uh, changed that uh, quite favorably for investors, but but without really hurting uh, workers that much either, because it coincides with some new government programs to provide some um, worker pension schemes and job loss compensation. Um, and uh, there's also changes to uh, regulatory processes that basically kind of uh, you know, streamline and rationalize uh, procedures for businesses. And concurrent and, and sort of uh, closely associated with the omnibus law was a regulation that removed almost all of the ceilings that had applied to foreign ownership uh, in a range of sectors. And uh, that's a that's a, a a big step forward that uh, is long overdue in Indonesia. Uh, so um, yeah, overall, the the omnibus is uh, yeah bodes well uh, for the the regulatory regime that governs investment. Um, uh, it rectifies a lot of uh, niggling problems uh, that uh, uh, have have affected uh, sentiment, uh, but. Uh, in Indonesia, that's only part of the problem. What's written in legislation or what's on a piece of paper uh, is just uh, one part of the story. And uh, the reality in the field of uh, uh, having to actually operate is another. And that's where governance and, and legal certainty and, and transparency and accountability come into play. Right. So the, um, the, the revision to the KPK law was, uh, I believe, enacted in October or November. And the omnibus law was passed in December last year, right? Um, yeah, the um, so the the KPK law revision happened in uh, September uh, and early October 2019, uh, and then the uh, omnibus law finally passed uh, into law in October 2020. Right, and then more recently, there's been another attempt to. Uh, maybe streamline members of the KPK a bit more with the so-called civic test uh, that took place uh, a few months ago. 
can you um, share why this test is so controversial and what does it mean for the future of the KPK? Yes, so yeah, this um, uh, the Indonesian acronym is um, TKW, uh, or yeah, civics test is a good translation, and the idea is that it uh, tests whether the existing KPK personnel have sufficient appreciation for Indonesia's uh, national integrity uh, to qualify to become civil servants. So on the face of it, it's pretty ludicrous because uh, the, the personnel of the KPK have uh, proven themselves uh, more dedicated and effective than almost pretty, pretty much any other institution as a whole uh, anywhere in the government. And so uh, this uh, test of patriotism uh, and so on is really a pretense. Uh, uh, and uh, I think the uh, TKW was uh, more a subjective way to filter out individuals that the new KPK leadership deemed insufficiently loyal uh, to themselves. And uh, chief chief among them was uh, Novel Baswedan, uh, but there's also uh, uh, at least half a dozen other uh, key figures in the KPK who have uh, become very accomplished and influential investigators. Uh, and um, Novel Baswedan himself, um, incidentally, is the cousin of the Jakarta governor, Anis Baswedan, but uh, the two don't appear particularly close. But Novel Baswedan uh, has been uh, the chief investigator in a host of the KPK's most uh, sensational cases. And then uh, you know, throughout that time, he has incurred the wrath of uh, vested interests. And a big problem uh, throughout the history of the KPK is uh, animosities uh, between the KPK and the, uh, the mainstream police corps. Uh, the, the national police uh, have elements um, which at, at times have been closely aligned with uh, vested interests that have been the targets of corruption investigations. And therefore, uh, on at least three separate occasions, uh, police have overtly attempted to uh, uh, arrest or prosecute uh, various uh, members or personnel of the KPK. Uh, and that has included Novel Baswedan in the past. And then in April 2017, uh, Baswedan was walking home in his housing complex from his mosque before dawn in the dark. And a motorcycle uh, drove up alongside him and um, with two passengers and, and the rider on the back threw a cup of acid onto his face and destroyed his left eye. And he had to undergo uh, more than a dozen, I think, uh, surgeries in Singapore uh, that failed. So he's, he's disfigured now and, um, and, and almost legally blind, but he remained active in the KPK. Um, so he, he's become a talisman, basically, for clean governance reformers in Indonesia. And this uh, TKW test determined that he's insufficiently patriotic to become a civil servant. So he's out of the commission as of uh, November, along with the uh, the coterie of figures in the commission who have been uh, closely associated and, and allied with him uh, throughout these years. That seems to me pretty much like a, a kind of a sabotage strategy. Um, and it looks like the erosion of power of the KPK seems um, inevitable. But would you say um, that this is the end of the KPK? And you know, what are the risks of 
this agency uh, becoming ineffective and maybe more dangerously uh, perhaps counterproductive. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, hmm. Sorry, yeah, there is a lot of different possibilities uh, from this point forward because um, another one of the aspects of the 2019 law revision was the revocation of the commission's power to impose wiretaps. And so that was another thing seen as something that weakened the KPK at the time. However, little noticed in, in recent months is the fact that the nine-member constitutional court actually uh, struck down that element of the 2019 law revision. So in fact, the KPK actually still has its power to impose wiretaps, uh, as had been the case before uh, the, the, the law revision. Uh, so it's really just this uh, conversion of personnel to civil service status, and then uh, Widodo's appointment of uh, a weak five-member board in, in late 2019, uh, chiefly with the inclusion of an active three-star police general as the KPK's chair. His status as an active general is in and of itself a, an egregious conflict of interest uh, with the KPK's independence. Um, moreover, Bahuri had had a long controversial uh, record um, in the police and uh, for several years serving within the KPK as a director. Um, and then he has uh, championed this um, TKW test that has ousted uh, Novel Basueda. And so uh, Bahuri himself is a, uh, a real lightning rod for controversy. So what can happen in the future is that uh, the KPK could uh, recoup uh, some of its uh, effectiveness with uh, a turnover in its uh, five-member board when their terms expire and end 2023. Uh, the personnel would still be uh, subservient to the government as civil servants, unfortunately, but uh, at least uh, the commission could still function somewhat effectively. Uh, another possibility, though, is that the KPK just becomes uh, defunct and irrelevant, and, and uh, under Bahuri, it does nothing significant. But another possibility that you alluded to is that uh, it could become an instrument for abuse because... Uh, in, 20, uh, in 2003, President Megawati at the time approved the commission's creation, I think without really fully appreciating the implications or, or uh, uh, significance uh, of the plan at the time, because the KPK really is uh, uh, remarkably powerful, much more so than virtually any other equivalent anti-corruption commission in the world. Uh, it has the power to make arrests as it deems fit and to hold suspects in custody for uh, quite some time and then to conduct its own prosecutions by itself without having to go to the attorney general's office. And these uh, cases uh, unfold in a special corrupt crimes court which, in which the, the majority of the five-member judicial panels are judges drawn from outside the regular judiciary. They're ad hoc judges. Uh, and so the KPK's conviction record has been extraordinarily high uh, since 2004. So uh, that's great for battling corruption, provided that the KPK commissioners are people with uh, integrity and ethics. However, there's an intrinsic uh, risk that these powers could be subject to abuse by the wrong types of commissioners. Um, because the, the commission really uh, does an end run around the typical checks and balances that uh, legal system institutions use to um, sort of uh, prevent abuses by any particular one of them. 
So uh, that's a, that's a problem now, and that's a worry. And in fact, uh, uh, one of Bahuri's uh, first acts uh, after having um, deactivated Novel Basuedan and Basuedan's allies is to uh, announce plans to interrogate uh, Jakarta Governor Anis Basuedan, uh, Novel Basuedan's cousin, who is uh, regarded by the Widodo administration as, a, as an adversary. So that is congruent with the worries that the KPK will become uh, a, a tool for uh, political abuse. Mm. Is that even more concerned that uh, with um, a police general at the head of the KPK, um, one could assume that the police and the KPK would be working uh, more closely together now, whereas in the past, you know, there was this uh, open conflict, I think we can say, between the two. Well, yeah, so in theory, as a uh, three-star general, Bahuri should, uh, who's active, uh, Bahuri should be a subordinate subject to the direct orders of uh, uh, Listio Sigit Prabowo, uh, who since January 2021 is now the police chief uh, with four-star rank. However, uh, in Indonesia, nothing is ever quite so clear-cut. So, uh, in fact, uh, it does not seem as if Bahuri is uh, beholden to Listio. And instead, uh, Bahuri seems to be quite an independent actor at present. In fact, so much so that uh, uh, when my podcast uh, interviewed uh, Novel Basuedan a couple of months ago, he uh, uh, disclosed to us that uh, Bahuri is, is not respecting the usual norms that govern the decision-making within the five-member KPK, and instead uh, Bahuri is making decisions on his own, according to Novel Basuedan, somehow. Uh, uh, so there is not really... Uh, close uh, coordination that is constructive right now between the uh, the KPK and the police. Um, and what clouds matters even further, though, is that uh, Listio is, uh, for the first time ever, he is a, is a police chief who is embarking on some um, seemingly meaningful internal reforms of the police. So, in fact, uh, where the KPK is actually digressing lately, Listio, the newly inducted police chief, is actually bringing the police uh, more in a positive direction suddenly for the first time uh, in, in, in a, a great while. Mm. Good news then, in that rather grim description of, you know, future with, with the KPK, but... Yeah. But yeah um, I think we're nearing our time now, but um, I, I, I feel that we can't end this podcast without asking you about um, the situation in Jakarta right now as the country is, is you know, uh, facing a dramatic situation uh, with regards to the pandemic. How is it? Yeah, uh, the ambulance sirens are incessant, um, but uh, um, yeah, and I haven't been out and about very much at all. Um, I'm right in the center of Jakarta here, and um, yeah, in one of the more slightly affluent neighborhoods. So it's uh, not really indicative uh, of um, the, the city, or even or certainly the country as a whole. But yeah, conditions are really grim. Definitely, uh, there's plenty of images and accounts and stories about hospital lobbies uh, overflowing with patients on the floor, 
um, and uh, you know, the cadavers uh, piling up um, and a lack of ambulances to, to carry patients. And then there's oxygen shortages and a scramble to import canisters and oxygen concentrators that are needed. Uh, every hospital has uh, emergency structures, erected tents or, or such things. And um, the new cases every day are, are just dwarfing the capacity of the healthcare system. So Indonesians are really, uh, really distressed right now because uh, they're fearful of becoming sick, knowing that there's no real recourse uh, in terms of treatment um, if they fall ill. And then right now it's a surge on top of a surge because uh, it's, there's, there's been a, no way to accommodate isolation cases. There's a, a complete uh, lack of uh, space and isolation facilities. So uh, positive cases are having to isolate at home. And of course, uh, all of Java is so densely populated that uh, very few people really have adequate space to isolate properly with COVID uh, by themselves. So therefore, there's family clusters emerging and, and that's fueling this uh, continued spike. I think um, the only kind of light at the end of the tunnel is that um, um, there's some data showing that um, uh, antibody prevalence in Jakarta uh, really is pretty high with the pandemic having gone on for well over a year now. So uh, the uh, the mythical level of herd immunity may actually be close uh, now, finally, uh, for Jakarta province. And so there should be a, a, a turnaround in the uh, infection numbers here soon, but um, uh, otherwise, yeah, Indonesia is really bearing the, the full brunt of a uh, Delta spike right now, and it's uh, it's uh, uh, really, really damaging to the country's outlook and really distressful for the population. Yes, indeed, and very sad. Let's let's put our hopes on this data then and, 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 and this uh, promising herd immunity and wish for the best uh, for this great country. Um, Kevin, it's been great to having you on today. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your insights and expertise with us. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Yes, yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Vanessa. Thanks, Kevin. Goodbye for now. Okay, bye-bye now. <laughs>